Today might be July the 31st, 2016, and this is probably maybe lecture discussion number 248. I am reasonably confident that one of those two things is true, but for our vast internet audience, hello, vast internet audience, you're on your own. I disavow all responsibility as to the accuracy of our numbering system, I should say my numbering system, and the actual date of the lecture. Upon advice and after lengthy recommendations and consultations with the Cliffside Legal Defense Authority. <laughs> you would know why if you read my mail. Oh. <laughs> As everyone's aware, the reputation of the Cliffside Legal Defense Authority is one of notoriety. You can interpret that any way you wish. Some would say uh, memorable. <laughs> and anyway, they aren't, they are, they're worth exactly what I'm paying them. Keep, uh, uh, you interpret that how you will. Okay. Having made limited progress, which is usual, that's normal. You, listen, we're always going to only make limited measured progress. It's the nature of the infinite word that we are attempting to grasp. Abios. Hi. Welcome. Grandma's downstairs. <laughs> Who's the grandfather of that child that's out of control? You can talk to him. The point is, is that this is the infinite word that we're attempting to grasp. We're not going to grasp it. Think about getting a hold of, if you will, just the mathematics of holding on to infinity or encircling it. It's just uh, simply illogical and a silly concept. But we do, upon occasion, move noticeably, and that's encouraging. Uh, today may not be that day, but uh, it does happen. We're going to see. On the list of things we're going to do today is the color blue. Notice the blue motif. That's because I have yet to put the black refill into the black marker. But I'll work on that eventually. But the color blue, we're trying to place some definitive characteristics with regard to there's, there's three colors, right? There is blue and there is purple. And there's scarlet, scarlet, and of course everyone has realized that purple is the addition of blue. Look at this. Where are you going to get this kind of stuff? I mean, this is this is coming out purple. Okay, everybody agrees that purple is the addition of blue and scarlet, but pay attention to these three colors. They're all over the Bible. Blue, uh, purple, and scarlet. And obviously, many scholars have noted that the purple being the addition of blue and red has something to do with and is primarily, probably I would agree with primarily, they place the hypostatic union here. This is Christ's infinite Godhood with the blood of humanity. That's what they do. So that gives you some idea what blue might actually mean, uh, though it is much more sophisticated than that. I won't dismiss the hypostatic union. I accept that it has merit. I'm going to investigate with you the symbolism in a greater detail. But pay attention to the fact that all three of these colors are extraordinary. They are given by God, Exodus 25.4. That is the... Oh, wow. It kind of comes out purple. 
Exodus 25.4 is the first mention of a couple of them. So God uses them in his tabernacle. His tabernacle is where he has decided, where he decided that he would come down and dwell with Israel. That's where he would reside. Again, recognize infinite being. Uh, how do I put an infinite being in a room? But he put himself in the sense that he had a presence there, the Shekinah glory, in his tabernacle. And those are the colors that he is using they are within the offering of Israel. There are these incredible, astonishing colors, blue, purple, and scarlet, given to Israel, and they are to offer to him these things that have those colors. So we're going to proceed with the assumption that we're not going to figure this out, because we won't until Christ tells us everything that is here. But we're, going to, we're commanded to persevere. We're to work this. We're to glean what we can, labor while knowing that the God of our creation can't be understood by a finite being, which is us, right? And at the top of the list is the life is in the blood. That's Leviticus 17. Do I have it on the... Yes, I do. As we go through blue, we're going to have to understand Leviticus 17. The meanings of Leviticus 17. Last week we made, and only managed, but we made a smallish dent. The reconciliation between the prohibition of eating blood. I've got to go back over these three people. I'll do that in just a second. For those of you who might have missed it, there's a relationship to those three. Uh, when you understand that and understand what they're doing together and independently, it becomes very, very valuable to you. But there's this reconciliation between the prohibition of eating blood in Leviticus 17 uh, and then Christ's uh, instructions with the Passover communion. On, in the Passover communion, he says, drink this, this is my blood, that's the wine, as you know. And in Leviticus 17, the man who is eating blood is executed. So we have to reconcile, put those together, understand how they fit. At least we've determined that Leviticus 17 rests in, in his foundation of Leviticus 17 is Yom Kippur. Oops, forgot a P. Or the Day of Atonement. Whenever you read Leviticus 17, understand that the Day of Atonement is the foundation for Leviticus 17. That will help you. That's the Feast Day of Atonement, the Atonement Ceremony, the sprinkling of the blood in the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is filled with blue, purple, and scarlet. Therefore, if you were here last week, the eating of blood is done in direct opposition. So I essentially have two priests. I have the blood-eating priest, and I have Aaron side by side, if you want to think of them that way. One in the tabernacle, one of them just outside the city. Both of them are dealing with blood. One is eating blood, the blood eater. The other is Aaron, who is sprinkling the blood in the tabernacle. So see the juxtaposition of those two men side by side, if you will. That's the best way to think of it. At the same time, on the same day, doing particularly, I'm sorry, specifically opposite things. Understanding that atonement context, very important. I have the eating of blood being done by a counterfeit priest for the opposite purpose of what Aaron is doing with the atonement blood. And we made some headway last week defining the 
uh, in the definition of eating blood, what eating blood means. Hope you remember. Much more distance to travel always, right? Okay. That gets us to where we are. We're going to go back to blue here. I've been doing blue a long time, haven't I? That's the tassels. The number's 15 of tassels. Remember, I have a man gathering wood, the, the wood gatherer. He's executed because he's gathering wood. I have the rebellious son, the rebel, Deuteronomy 21.18. He's executed for being a rebel. I have the blood eater. He's executed for being a blood eater. So I have those three guys doing essentially similar things. I'm sorry, that's not right. Doing individual things that have a connection to a whole. And the man gathering wood, of course, is where we get blue. So when I start dealing with blue, it's the wood gatherer that causes me to deal with blue because of the wood, the man gathering wood, the tassels are put on the, or the fringes are put with a blue thread on the corners of the tallets of every Jew. And they are to hold those and remember them, what they're for. And the woman who was bleeding for 12 years, she figured this out. She understood the prophecy in Micah. She understood the prophecy in Numbers 15. She runs through the crowd because she's been bleeding for 12 years and she grabs a hold of the blue. That's why she did it. And that's where we have been, right? So we're going to go back to blue now after we've left the blood eater. We're going to spin the plate. I've got all these plates on sticks. How many plates do I have? And I'm spinning plates all the time, keeping them on my sticks. Have you ever seen the stick guy with the plates? How many plates have I got? Come on. Yeah, five, six hundred of them, right? Yeah, that's what I got. In this case, I'm going to go back and spin the blue one. What's going to happen to the blood eater one? It's probably going to crash along with the rest of them. A big pile of plates at my feet. It goes that way every Sunday. So I'm going to go spin the blue one while Leviticus 17 just goes up there and wobbles for a while. Now, I should insert here, this is going to drive you crazy. (coughs) Excuse me. Whenever I talk about blue, I have to talk about sapphires. Whenever I talk about sapphires, I have to talk about Sapphira. So back we go to Ananias and Sapphira. Going to do that today? No. Just know that that Ananias and Sapphira have a blue... uh, issue here that we have to resolve. I'll do that in the weeks to come. I mentioned Ananias and Sapphira with some concern because it's easy when talking about blue to come off the rails here. The color blue causes all kinds of of wading in the mud in the tall grass and getting lost in the darkness. And that's mostly because of the Jewish commentaries. People are not going to like this. The Jewish commentaries uh, that have been written by the rabbis over the centuries cannot be trusted. Wait for my mail. God did not breathe the Jewish commentaries. He did not inspire them. They are not God-breathed. They have great value. Don't misunderstand me. But you cannot assume that they are definitively correct. It should be repeated, Amos 5.21. Amos 5.21, God says this to Israel, I hate, I despise your feast days. That's what he says. 
And I do not savor your sacred assemblies. God at Amos 5.21, 5.22 said, I hate and despise what you have done to the feast days and what you have done to the sacred assemblies, the ceremonies. I hate it. That's pretty strong, wouldn't you say? Not a statement anyone should ignore. God continues in Amos 5.22, says to Israel, Though you offer me burnt offerings and your, and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I would suggest to you that's lots of trouble. Now, why do you suppose that God hates and despises the feast days of Israel? Or, if you wish, the traditions of Israel. Why does he hate and despise them? Obviously, Israel, they, Israel, has corrupted his feast days and turned them into their feast days. He doesn't say, I hate my feast days. He says, I hate your feast days. Your feast days, he says to Israel, have very little relationship to my feast days. So what did they do? Obviously, Israel has corrupted his feast days. He sees them as something to be despised. If God despises something, big problems. By the way, uh, I cannot break the by the way habit by the way. I may never break the by the way habit, but if I can keep it down under 50 in a lecture, that will be good. So I'm working on it. I have accountants now checking on these kinds of things for me. Notice I did not say it again. It took a lot of discipline. I am a professional. But boy, it was close there for a second. I think of it, it's coming out. <sighs> did you know that you can get a better trumpet tone if you will wiggle your toes? That's true. Because it distracts you from being, when you play the trumpet, and I attempt to play it, uh, what happens is the tension overwhelms you. And the best way to release that tension is to force it down below the belt line. And one of the ways you can do that is wiggle your toes. Then you lose your tension and you just do what the machine, the body, is capable of doing. It's an old trick. Lots of people use it. And it works. It's amazing. Why did I say that? In order to stop from saying what goes into this box. Because it's there. So I'm now wiggling my toes and that's working. By the way. That was a trick. <sighs> Israel has corrupted the feast days of God perverted them, polluted them. And how have they done this? Specifically, what did they do? What did they add? What did they remove? It is the same issue as their offerings. Why doesn't he savor the offerings? Let's just take the grain offering. has to have salt. Did they take the salt out? Well, of course they did. Do they, do they understand what the salt is there for? If they took it out literally or did they take it out symbolically? How did they remove it? What does it mean? It doesn't have a, he doesn't savor it. It doesn't have the sweet aroma to him. And he will not, he says, accept their fattened peace offerings. 
Something smells all right, but it's a stench now instead of a sweet aroma to God. So what has Israel done to them to make him respond this way as he did in Amos 5.21, 5.22? Well, I, I submit that it's beyond obvious. I'm going to tell you why he responds this way, because they are no longer Christ-full, they are Christ-less. They have removed Christ. They don't even know he's in there. That makes it worse. They don't know what they don't know, and if they did know, they would do it anyway. They are Christless feasts, Christless offerings, and God hates them. Now, let's define hate. Don't anthropomorphize. Don't say hate from God is the same as hate from me. My hate and God's hate are the same. Don't say that. You're wrong. I'm wrong. Our hate is sinful. His hate is not. Why does God hate these feast days? He hates them because they are Christless. If they are Christless, then what are they? Without Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. So they are salvationless. No one is being saved by them. They have been perverted to the point where they are valueless to salvation. Let me say this again. Without Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. This is the fundamental principle of Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. I know this offends people. I know. When I say there is only one salvation, it is Christ. There is no salvation other than Christ. That makes people mad at me, and I am sorry. I know the overwhelming response from the world when I make those statements is that God is evil. It is evil, they say, if the only means of salvation is through Jesus Christ. They say God must be evil if that's true. Let me say it this way. The world says God is evil if only through Christ salvation is given. They say it all the time, every day. They don't miss a day. I know you've heard it. Let me explain the steps or the anatomy of that. And as an aside, this is about the color blue. I am defining to you, or trying to, the color blue. The color blue, Amos 5.21 through 5.22, is in the midst of God saying, I hate these feast, Christless feast days that you have now. And I'm sure every one of you have witnessed this accusation that God is evil if Christ is the only salvation. Um, but let me uh, say it in ways that, you, that it's usually laid out or usually framed. They will say it this way. If Christ is the only door, if Christ is the only door, the only singular gate or avenue by which man can be saved, then billions of good people will be condemned eternally by God. They say that. Have you heard it? Maybe you've heard it this way. They will say, How can a loving God cast the overwhelming majority of mankind into utter darkness, eternal fire, simply because, or just because, they do not believe in the name of Christ? Usually, 
the charge is uh, is in one of those two forms, and it's a very common atheistic refrain. And what they will say immediately afterwards is that since God is evil, since I've determined that it's evil to do this, and God is doing it according to Christianity, then we're not going to bow to an evil God. So that's the justification to being an atheist, and that's the the forms that you usually hear, which again, to repeat, that's the color blue. We're talking about the color blue. Am I hearing children uh, through those windows? Is that the responsibility of the Cliffside uh, Nursery Controlled? Uh, what's her official title? Wife of the pastor? Can we shut the windows maybe? Can you reach up there, Eric? Tell her she has lost control? Yell at her. Hey, sh- shut up, you kids down there, and then duck. Okay. <laughs> well, that seems to be a little better. What's she doing down there? Is it an egg flight this week? Or water balloon? She, you try, oh, swinging. Okay. Yeah, it's it's a war. I'll I'll make sure that she's corrected later. Usually, <laughs> how come the whole place bursts out into laughter whenever I? Yes, I'll set her down and straighten this out. You can, you can see. Okay, nothing will be done. Not a thing. I am not an idiot. <laughs> Don't argue with me on that. This is the color blue. By that I mean understanding why the tassels are blue explains those kinds of questions that you get. And some of you have gotten ahead of the pack a bit and have figured this all out. And yay for you, that's fantastic. Huzzah, huzzah. You still have to wait to go through the buffet line. But congratulations. I'm really thrilled you have started to put all these pieces together. Uh, and uh, But now you have to wait for the rest. And I'll throw this out a little bit for the uh, for the rest of us. Israel, Numbers 15, which is... The man gathering wood, Deuteronomy 21, 18, 22, which is the rebellious son, uh, and Leviticus 17, 1 through 16, which is the blood eater. That's Israel demonstrating their inclination to pursue pagan concepts. Vile, murderous, Moloch child sacrifice, child killing, blood eating, horrifying acts. God says, you, Israel, will do this as soon as you see it. You rush to it. I can't stop you. He can. He does. But they are inclined to it. And Israel is given blue tassels. He's given the color blue to stop them. Think of it that way. It's humanistic to think of it that way, or human perspective. But that's the reason for the blue tassels, is because they can't stop going after the man gathering wood, the rebellious son, and the blood-eating. The blood eater has a huge crowd. Aaron's got a small crowd, if you wish to think of it that way. And Israel is given blue tassels, the color blue, to help them resist, to keep them from becoming Amos 5, 21, 22, to resist Moloch. But as we know, Israel no longer has the color blue. They don't have the blue dye. They've lost it. It is lost. Now the tassels on the end of the talits, the zitzits, are white. There is no blue. Israel is blueless. Blue 
is gone from Israel and God hates their feast days. Now let's ask a couple questions concerning these complaints against God. They say all the time that God is going to condemn who? Who is he going to condemn? Billions and billions of who? Good people. That's what they say. God is going to kill all of these good people just because they will not believe in the name of Christ. So has God ever condemned a good person? Yes or no? Don't raise your hand here. Let me extrapolate it, extend it out. Has God, will God, ever condemn billions of good people? Obviously, we need to have God's definition of good. And that is not as obvious as I, as easy peasy as I have inferred. Whenever I enter this particular debate arena, I end up confronting whether God's definitions should be allowed. When I give somebody God's definitions, they say, no, we're not accepting God's definition. First thing they tell me. So let me reword that away. away. Uh, well, let me just uh, notice how I phrased it. It is phrased consistent with the opinion or the perspective of the complainants with regard to their conclusion on God's character. Let me reword that. The accusers of God have some fundamental elements to their position. Number one is that God is the, they see evil in the world and they ascribe it to God. They will tell you that God is the origin of all evil and is therefore evil himself. You've heard that discussion hundreds of times here. We have it all the time. Therefore, they will conclude that mankind is now legitimately able to accuse and judge God as evil since mankind has goodness in him as opposed to God. They will concede that God may have some goodness, but he's the author of all this evil, so he bears the responsibility for it. We have goodness in us, they will say, and therefore we can judge God as evil. And his being evil disallows or disqualifies his definition of goodness. So I can't give them God's definition of goodness. That's the first thing they will tell me. So keep that in mind as we continue uh, this discussion. The Bible, of course, is in absolute opposition, isn't it? It says that there is none who is good. None who does good. No, not one. God will not send good people to condemnation. There is none who does good. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3. All means all. None means none. No, not one means no, not one. Seems simple, right? So God defines how many are, are good? None. None are good. Only one who himself is pure good could ever define as everyone. Boy, this is. I need some medicine to do this. God says none is good. What's required to say that? Think that through a second. God defines none as good, and only one who is himself pure good could do that, or would even do it. The very fact that God says none are good means that he has to be absolute pure good. I know that's pretty bold talk for a heavy-boned fellow with a cataract. Thank you for laughing, Dave. 
But I want you to consider the logic there. When God says no one is good, no, not one, that means that He is pure good. He has to be. And only somebody who is pure good would say that. So you consider why that is so and why God's goodness is proved by Romans 3 while I proceed. I'll do it again next week if you don't. So don't worry about it. If none, no, not one, is righteous, none are good, then no one who is good is condemned because there is no one who is good. Does that make sense? Now you're thinking like me. Ask the inverse. That's my diabolical plan. Ask the inverse of that. If none are good, who is saved? Are any of the good condemned? None is good. How about, how about are the good saved? Does God save only the good ones? Well, obviously not, right? But you will find church after church after church that will contradict that. And that is a serious doctrinal issue. God does not save only the good ones in the sense that they have earned it. See rule one, none are good. Now, is unbelief, what is unbelief in Christ? Is that evil or good? They will say to you, billions of good unbelievers, right? Can I put the word good as an adjective in front of unbelievers in Christ? I can't put the word good in there in the sentence in the first place. But let's uh, grant me the premise. Is there a bunch of good unbelievers? The second warning of Hebrews, there's warnings in Hebrews, called the three warnings of Hebrews. Second warnings of Hebrews, Hebrews 3.12, Beware lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil heart of unbelief. God calls unbelief evil. Hebrews 4.1-6, God's rest is not entered because of unbelief. Unbelief is evil. You will not be saved if you have unbelief. Unbelief is disobedience. God commands us, commands all of His creation to believe in Jesus Christ as ultimately God Himself, right? Why does He say belief in me, belief in Christ is obedience? Belief in Christ is good. Unbelief is evil. Mankind willfully chooses unbelief. Why? Why is unbelief in Christ's name evil? For the same reason God hates those feast days. Why is Christ the only salvation? There is no other resurrection. Only Jesus Christ resurrects unto eternal life. He is the only source of life as God defines life. Life is Christ as God defines life. He is the only resurrection, the only life. Again, to repeat, why is Christ the only life? Why don't I have lots of life out there? Any bunch of ways we can have life. The Universalist says there's one mountain, you can go up the mountain all kinds of ways. God says no, there's only one gate, one door. You've got to go through that door. Are you evil? Why does he say that? Can you defend it? I hope you can. Why is this true? It is true. Why is Jesus Christ the singular only means of salvation, the singular only means of life, the single only means of resurrection to life? He says it all the time. I'm the door. I'm the gate. 
There's only one way to get to life. Me. I'm it. I'm God. Why is unbelief, to repeat this question, in His name evil? Those questions are all part of the same question, all parts of a whole. Solve one and the other solve as well. Feel free to work on those as I continue because i get you back to blue. Blue is hard. It's going to be really hard here in a minute. I have to look around and see how many are still with me. Uh, three. That's not bad. That's a pretty good percentage for me. <laughs> I do not take it... People think I get really upset at my hate mail. I love my hate mail. I really do. It took me a while to get there, but now I just find it fantastic. And I miss it. I've driven off a lot of my hate mail people, and I didn't mean to do that. I, I, I really like them. But they don't, I think, feel good about me not feeling bad about them. One thing I've learned about hate mail is if you enjoy it, it kind of takes the edge away from them. And so then they go find another target, which is disappointing. That is why I answer the phone whenever uh, advertisers or politicians call me. Because I enjoy that. And that takes away their joy as well. So they stop calling me because I obviously like talking to them too much. But anyway, solve one of those questions and that solves them all. Don't feel bad if you don't get it. I don't take that personally. I know sooner or later you will and it will be yours. I have a wonderful lady down down in the States that says to me, I don't understand you very often. That's fantastic. Because that means there is some time in there she does understand me and that requires that she do some investigative thinking. That's what I'm trying to do. I don't expect you to have a passion for interferometry, but I do expect you to understand that physics solves the question of whether or not you have a soul. When you get those kinds of issues solved yourself, then you become powerful. That's important. Instead of driven around by wind and choked to death by weeds and eaten by birds, right? All right. Hopefully, you have derived the interconnection of unbelief in the color blue or the blue tassels. Numbers 15:39. Let me read it again. And you shall have tassels that you may look upon and remember all of the commandments of the Lord. And that is the tetragrammaton, the YHVA. Do you know what NRFS means? I hope you do. Because it ruins the joke if I have to explain it. YHVH, the sacred name, the ineffable, unpronounceable name, the lost name of God. I asked last week, did Christ go around Israel pronouncing his own name? Of course he did. Did anyone know he was saying it? Probably not. But God says, you shall have the blue tassels and look upon the blue tassels and remember the blue tassels and you will know the commandments of the Lord. And that's the YHVH, that is the unpronounceable sacred name, the four sacred letters. And so Israel was to look upon the blue tassel. Why blue? Why isn't it a green tassel? 
It's not. It's a blue tassel. Did God choose blue for a reason? Oh, my goodness, yes. Please. He picked it. He wants it to be blue. So now we have to ask ourselves, why does he like blue? Now, they lost the color blue. We don't really know for sure what color blue it was. We just know it was an extraordinary blue. And so we go back to this first mention of blue in Exodus 25.4. If it's for me, if it's not for me, was for me once and it was a trick. That really disappointed me. Anyway, why blue? Go back to the first mention where God first establishes blue and then you start following the blue trail and, and uh, then you're going to find why blue tassels. We've already covered Exodus 25.4 a little bit, right? Blue, purple, scarlet. Three colors. Two of those that's the first mention of blue. Okay, It's also the first mention of purple. And Exodus is filled with blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Exodus 25.4 is the first mention of, of blue and purple, as I said. Scarlet is at Genesis 38.28. So I have to go get scarlet from someplace else. It doesn't start in Exodus 25.4. That should make me pause. I should recognize why. Where's the first mention of scarlet? Judah and Tamar. Oh, my goodness. Tamar has a couple of twins. That's a redundancy. I know. Don't write me. Okay, write me. Judah, Tamar. She has twins. One of them comes out and the midwife throws a scarlet thread around his arm and says, that's the firstborn. That's the first mention of scarlet. And his name was Zerah, which means, by the way, means scarlet. He's named one of the colors. So I have a twin named Scarlet. Well, well, well. That's cool. But he was supplanted by another. Paris. After this mystery of Perez and Zerah, we then have blue, purple, and scarlet put together. So this is not going to be easy. We have to solve Tamar and Judah. Everybody hates Tamar. They call her a whore, a prostitute. They say these babies are born as, as a, the offspring of prostitution. Condemned them all the time. They condemned Tamar for what she did. I don't think that's justified at all. I think if you're doing that, you have missed that story completely. And you probably have missed it because you didn't notice the scarlet. So, anyway, we are given blue, purple, and scarlet threads at 25.4 of Exodus. And they go all throughout the tabernacle. The gate of the court, or if you will, the door. The door has of the entrance to the tabernacle. Again, the tabernacle is a flat-top tent that God designed himself, that God was inside of himself, and he has poured, marinated, if you want to think of it that way. Everywhere in it is blue, purple, and scarlet. Now, the gate of the entrance, the door to the tabernacle, the veil, the tore 
at the crucifixion of Christ. Blue, purple, scarlet. The veil of the Holy of Holies is woven in with blue, purple, and scarlet. The ten curtains of the tabernacle, blue, purple, scarlet. The screens, blue, purple, scarlet. The garments of the high priest, blue, purple, scarlet everywhere in them. The ephod, the sleeveless vest, blue, purple, scarlet. The breastplate of judgment, blue, purple, scarlet. The one that has the twelve stones. Hopefully you see the obvious. God said to you, I'm going to give you this blue and this purple and scarlet. It has extraordinary meaning. I'm going to put it on your tassels. I'm going to put it everywhere in my tabernacle. I'm going to put it all over the place. You figure out why. Be like that woman bleeding to death. She knew that what it meant. Just got to grab it. All I got to do is grab it. And I'm going to stop bleeding. And she's amazing. And he really singles her out as somebody uh, that we should understand. So I have all of this. God's, God has a house and he put blue, purple, and scarlet threads throughout it. And he intends to make his truth evident in his place of dwelling or in his meeting place. And, and so all we really have to do is get on this and we're going to solve it. Now here's where I have to erase stuff. It's going to get, I'm going to leave the NRFS there because it is the indisputable indisputable motto of Cliffside Community Chapel. So here we have Exodus 28.35. This is curious, interesting, I believe, relevatory. You will understand, I think, once you start to see how these fit together starts here. And it shall be upon Aaron when he ministers, and its sound will be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, when he comes out that he may not die. So, Aaron has to wear things in order to go before God. He has to have these things that he wears. And if he doesn't have them, he will not come out of the Holy of Holies alive. So let's talk about this, what Aaron has. Aaron has a robe, if you will, the lower or the inside robe. And he has to wear something over that robe. He has to wear what's called the ephod. What is an ephod? Well, an ephod is a vest, a sleeveless vest. Think of it that way, or an armless garment. And it, and it has these rings on the back. If you wish to think of it like a corset, you can. It goes over the top of his robe. And it's all blue. All of it. The ephod is blue. Well, there we go. Now we're on to figuring out blue. Make sure the L's there. So, Aaron's got to wear this blue ephod. If he doesn't, he doesn't come out of the Holy of Holies alive. So, First the robe, then the ephod. The ephod has a hem, and there's blue, purple, scarlet pomegranates on it, and there's 
you will, you think of them as pomegranates, I guess it would be, be the right little little uh, embroideries. And there's bells of gold. And so he's got this robe, and now he's got an ephod. And if Aaron is not pro- properly clothed, he's going to die in there. So that's critical. Start figuring out why. In the presence of the Lord, if he doesn't have the right priest garments on, he will die. And the bells will cease ringing. Repeat again for you. Not perfectly clothed, death. No ringing of the bells. Because as soon as you're dead, you're not moving, bells don't ring, right? And they're listening. They, everybody's listening to see how Aaron's doing in there. And they're hearing those bells. As long as those bells are going off, things are good for Israel. Bells stop everybody panics. They had a rope around him. They had to drag him out of there because nobody's going in if he dies. And he isn't dressed right. Big time whooping trouble for the rest of us, right? Aaron goes in the presence of the YHVH and he has to be per- properly clothed. Make the application. Only come one way before the Lord. Now, God's going to tell you, He's going to explain to you how to dress. He has a turban. Oh, I guess this is number two. So, one, he's got a robe. Over that, he has this ephod, this vestment. It goes all the way down below his knees. It's got bells on the hems. It's blue. It's got scarlet thread, purple thread, and pomegranate embroidery in the hem. Then on top of his head, he has a turban. And attached to the turban with a blue cord. So the turban has a blue cord. The ephod is blue, and this one's got a blue cord. Oh, and there's blue cords everywhere, by the way. And there's... Ah! But understand, the blue shows up on Aaron significantly. So, I, most of the ways it's depicted, the inner robe is, um, is kind of a, more of a white, and the ephod, ephod is blue. The turban has a blue cord, and on the blue, what the purpose of the blue cord is, is to attach a gold plate. It's a plate of pure gold. It's attached to Aaron's forehead. So think of it as being right on top of his forehead underneath the turban. That would be fine. And there's an engraving on it that says, Holiness to the Lord. And it's held there by a blue cord. Focus on these that emphasize the blue, where the blue is by itself, for lack of a better description here. Granted, the blue, purple, scarlet is one word. Uh, We'll get to that next week. Whenever you see blue, purple, scarlet, think of it as one word, because there's three pieces of one word. What does that one word mean? But for now, just note the turban and the ephod are, have this extraordinary blue element to them. The ephod is blue. The turban has a gold plate attached to it with a blue cord. The plate is engraved. Holiness to the Lord. Probably ought to run through this again. Aaron, the high priest, will come before God, the YHVH, the Shekinah glory, the light of all life, which is in the Holy of Holies. So he's walking into the Holy of Holies. He's got a robe. He's got a blue vestment. It's got bells on it. It's got pomegranates on it. It's got scarlet and purple, as well as blue in the hem for sure. 
Uh, he has a turban. He has a plate on his head. He goes by the veil, through the veil, which has got purple, I'm sorry, has blue, purple, and scarlet in the veil. Above the mercy seat is the Shekinah glory, the light of life. The light of creation is there, the primable light. And inside the, uh, our, the mercy seat, of course, is on top of the Ark of the Testimony. And inside the Ark of the Testimony is what? Ten Commandments. The two stone tablets. So far, so good. And Aaron must be clothed. He's got garments and exacting instructions. And obviously, these, all of this is an explanation of the great mysterious truths about God himself, his method of salvation. This is what you've got to do to live. And this is a symbol of that. He gave it to Israel. His desire is to restore his creatures, his creation to himself. And there's only one way to do that. And his omniscience sorry, forces that to be the case. The fact that he's omniscient means there's only one way that you can be saved. More on that to come. Soon. A relative term. But you need to begin to figure out why his omniscience then results in only one method of salvation. Now, Aaron has a robe. Over this robe is a blue vest. Attached to the ephod is a breastplate. It's got 12 stones and four rows. The breastplate is attached to the ephod uh, with a blue cord through rings of gold. This is where you want to think about a, a kind of a, you're going to pull it on him like a corset, right? He's going to have this breastplate and it's pulled tight with a blue cord through gold rings. The breastplate and the purpose of the cord and the gold rings is so the breastplate cannot come loose from the blue armless vestment or the ephod. So let's repeat that. He's got a blue vestment. Attached to that is a breastplate, gold with 12 stones in three and four rows. So I've got four rows of three. I've got stones in there, represent different, obviously, the tribes of Israel. Each stone is a different stone. And the blue cord attaches that breastplate that can't come loose through gold rings. So note, the blue cord attaches things so they cannot come loose. Those of you who have an eternal security position, here's where you're happy. Those of you who think you can cast off your salvation, you've got to deal with the blue cord and the vestment. God gives you your salvation, then he ties it to you. With what? With a blue cord. Why blue? Aaron has a turban on his head. He's got a gold plate that's right on his forehead. And it's engraved holiness to the Lord. And it's attached with a blue cord. And it can't come loose. It's on his forehead. What is it? What are you going to now go look up in the Bible? Everything that is on your forehead in the Bible. Who puts stuff on your forehead? God does. Who did he put it on? He puts this, bre this gold plate on the forehead of Aaron. Where else did he put something on somebody's forehead? Go connect them. Who else puts stuff on people's foreheads? 
Start comparing marks on foreheads. This plate won't come loose because it's got the blue cord attached to it. But God has marks on foreheads and Satan has his counterfeit. Ask why. Why does God do this? Why does Satan counterfeit it? All of this, all of this blue, purple, scarlet. Eventually we'll get into the Urim and the Thummim, right? Because that's in here. All of the gold, the blue cords, the bells. Everything, the curtains, the veil, the ark, the mercy seat, every single detail, component, element has a protective construct. So when Aaron comes before the YHVH, he doesn't die. Don't go into the Holy of Holies without the turban, without the gold thing, without the blue, ca- the blue cords, without the breastplate, without the blue cords. Without the ephod, without the robe, without the bells. Now go in there and you won't die. Simple as that. If you go before God with the wrong covering, He does not accept you. Which explains the blue, purple, scarlet, doesn't it? Why it's there. The blue has a task. You won't die if you have this. You won't die. The blue has a task to accomplish. It covers with the ephod. It attaches. It attaches the breastplate and the forehead plate. The blue tassels are supposed to be looked on and grasped and remembered. When you grab a hold of it, you stop bleeding to death. Next Sunday, that's the favorite words, next to finally. Yes, when I'm doing this, Internet folks, when I'm looking up like this, I'm not looking up towards heaven or some pious. I'm not doing that at all. I'm looking at the clock, which is right up there. That's very important. Usually you can see the reflection of the holy green LED clock on the board. I get complaints about that. That's for the uh, congregation here to know. And they don't have to turn around like they usually do in Mass, right when they think it's got to be close. Ah, I'm stalling now, right? The blue has this attaching, this covering, grasping, remembered, Context, construct. Next Sunday, I'll take on the possibility that the two stone tablets are made of blue stone. Now, that is quite a little discussion. I have never had it. I recognize that it is a Jewish tradition. The Jews believe this to be true. Is it in the Bible? Can it be inferred? Are they right? Will it fit with the blue, the purple, and the scarlet if the stone tablets are blue? One thing for sure, the Ark of the Covenant was designed specifically to hold these two tablets. The shape and the dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant are exactly the shape and the dimensions to put these two tablets there. All of this ultimately comes up through Ezekiel 1.26 and some parts of Exodus. And we will see. 
we are going to know their size and their shape. That's going to be easy. Are they blue? Are they made out of sapphire? How many were made? Which ones are in the in the the uh, ark? The first ones were the first ones made of something that are different from the second ones. Where did Moses get the first material, or did God make them Himself? How are they designed? Do you know? You might know this. Most of the Jewish tradition says that God did not inscribe them. He actually, he actually, how do I describe this? He actually burned through them. In other words, the word is, is uh, burned into the stone and it goes all the way through. It penetrates. And the miracle of it is that you can read them from either direction the same. Does that make sense? In other words, he burns the words all the way through, like, like the letters are completely penetrate. You would see light come through all the letters from both sides. And if you looked at this side, it would read the way it reads. And if you flip it over, it would still read the same way, even though you would expect that it would be an, an inverse or a mirrored image. So that is the miracle, they say. We will, dis- we will discuss whether or not that has any validity. This is a challenging event. Uh, as we go. But I hope you have figured out now why you have blue tassels. And now you're able to figure out, aren't you? Once you know why you have the blue tassels, yes, musicians, come forward. Once you know why you have blue tassels, you now know why the man was gathering wood. Why he was executed. Easy peasy. Simple as cake. Piece of pie, is that how it goes? Come on. Let all rise and look at the holy clock.